I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey, everyone. How's it going? How's everyone doing out there? I hope you enjoyed episode 10 that came out a couple weeks ago. In our quest to try to upload more regularly to the podcast so we don't leave you guys hanging as much in between episodes as we get our next guest lined up, we thought we'd do it a little bit differently today. And especially because we wanted to mark the fact that we've made it to 10 episodes. And also this month, we surpassed over 4,000 total downloads, which is pretty cool. So thank you everyone out there who listens and subscribes to the show. We do this for you guys. <laughs> we truly appreciate it. And it's fun to bring this content out to you all. Yeah, totally. And we've got a lot of new content on the way. We have a very large pipeline of guests in the works, and we are working on interviewing them and editing uh, those interviews into new episodes. Um, and we're also working to expand the breadth of uh, content uh, for the podcast with some uh, different uh, types of of guests, getting more biologists and ecologists in to talk about some of the um, broader uh, aspects of the natural world and conservation that impact wildlife health. So we're excited to get that going too. And to help make that a reality, um, I'll be getting a little bit more involved with the podcast and we'll be taking on some of these interviews with Michelle, which you've already heard with our um, IBR uh, International Bird Rescue episode. And I'll be taking on some interviews solo. Yeah, and speaking of episode 10, where we chatted with Dr. Rebecca Dewar of International Bird Rescue, um, we thought we'd just give you guys a quick update on where things stand with that spill um, and just kind of circle back in case folks are wondering what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so the oil spill response is going really well. Um, the minimum estimate now is just over 25,000 gallons. And there hasn't been any significant increases or updates regarding oiled wildlife. Um, and pleased to report that it seems crews have not found an oiled animal in about 10 days. Uh, cleanup crews have removed upwards of 500,000 pounds of tar, tar balls, as well as oil tainted uh, sand, seaweed, and driftwood. Um, and these, uh, these recovery, oil recoveries, um, are tapering off. Um, and Huntington Beach is happy to report that uh, more than one third of the shoreline is nearing final cleanup approval. I think the um, big takeaways here that the uh, oil spill is not as large as originally thought um, and that the response was really, really rapid by um, uh, all the involved parties. Um, and the, I want, you know, want to give a shout out to um, the, the town of Huntington Beach, where their uh, fire department and public's work department um, received a grant um, for a oil spill response trailer um, and, and got that equipment and did the training to be able to uh, respond quickly uh, to any oil spills that, that happened in their area. Yeah, so the Oiled Wildlife Care Network 
um, through UC Davis is reporting their total number of animals that have been recovered so far during the course of this spill. So you can find this on the OWCN website. Um, and so as of November 4th, they are reporting that they have recovered a total of 124 animals. Some of those were recovered dead and some were recovered live. So for example, um, for birds, which was their greatest number of animals that were recovered during the spill, looks like they're reporting 34 were recovered alive, 82 recovered dead. So that's a total of 116 birds that were recovered so far. And of those recovered birds, a total of 22 have been released so far. So that's great that, that some have been successfully rehabilitated and released. They've also recovered a few marine mammals. Looks like one marine mammal was recovered alive. Unfortunately, six were recovered dead. They're not reporting that any of those have been released yet. They also report that they have recovered uh, one herpetile, which was recovered alive. And in terms of species, it was a, a side blotched lizard recovered alive. And so that brings the total recovered number of animals again to 124. So that's where we stand. So all in all, it could have been way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to the uh, response crews and to World Wildlife Care Network for their, uh, their work in minimizing the impacts of that spill. And yeah, it was great to be able to talk with uh, Rebecca at International Bird Rescue and get some insight onto their response to the spill and, and how they handle oil spills in general. So in our next episode, which will be coming out in a couple weeks, we interviewed Dr. Margaret Wild, who is a veterinarian, but she also has a PhD um, in zoology. And we had a fascinating conversation about elk hoof disease, AKA treponeme-associated hoof disease. And she's one of the key researchers that has been leading all of the research into elk hoof disease. And she actually runs a captive elk research facility um, over at Washington State. And so that was a really fascinating conversation, just learning about the, this emerging disease in elk and also how, how you <laughs> have run a, an elk, captive elk facility and, and bringing elk in from the wild and adapting them to captivity was really, really interesting and, and just hearing about her studies. So I'm super excited to share that with you guys in a couple weeks. It's, it was an awesome conversation. Yeah, I overheard some of that interview and uh, I think you guys are in store for a really great episode with some really wild, pun intended, <laughs> uh, um, findings and methods. Um, yeah, so let's kick it to some segments to wrap up this episode. So what segments do we have for this episode? Yeah, let's kick it to some segments. And this week we have challenging terms in wildlife health, a.k.a. things Vin might mispronounce. Okay. Which is, there's, there's a lot of terms out there that I might mispronounce. Um, then we've got who's back. Who's back. Who's back of the season. Um, then we've got parasites are cool too. And wrapping up with this week in wildlife health. 
Ah, so like current news in wildlife health. Mm-hmm. Okay. Segments. Let's roll into it. Let's start with um, challenging terms used in wildlife health. So for this one, Vin, I'm going to show you a couple words. Okay. And one, you try to pronounce it and let me know if you have any idea what the word means. All right. Am I getting any synthetic chemicals in no. this term? Okay. No. Because I will definitely screw those up. And then when we do this segment in the future, just so you don't have to feel like you're being made fun of every episode, we can flip it and you can give me some challenging um, ecological terms that it will probably screw up. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's a little harder to do, but we can give it a shot. Okay. Okay. So Vin, here's the first word. So I'm going to show Vin a word and see if he can pronounce it and see if he has any idea what it is. And then listeners, you can struggle shred, along. <laughs> you can shred me online or yeah, struggle along. <laughs> All right. Here's the first word. <laughs> Sound it out. <laughs> Epistaxis. Yeah. It's oh, okay. Really Wait, did I get that? Epistaxis. Epistaxis. Okay. Epistaxis. That's, Do you have any idea what that is? I mean, I immediately think of EpiPen. Um, so, um, how epistaxis might relate. Um, I'm drawing a firm blank on this, but epistaxis, I would say um, it's a term that means um, resting in a normal state. Oh, that's a good guess, um, although completely wrong. Okay. So, <laughs> so this is a medical term. So epistaxis is basically a fancy way to say a nosebleed or hemorrhage from the nose. Oh, so not a normal state. Exactly. <laughs> kind of the opposite of that. Um, so this is relevant for wildlife health for a couple of different reasons, as we'll hear in a minute. Different hemorrhagic diseases, one of the things you might see is nosebleed, a.k.a. epistaxis. Nice. All right. That's a win. So you kind of you kind of got that, sort of. N not at all. Uh, not at all. Well, okay. I could like sort of pronounce it. You could sound it out. Yeah. You're good at phonics. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My phonics work. All right, next word. Okay. All right, here you go. What's the word? Retrofarnin. Oh, you were you were off to a good start. Angel. Oh wait, you were... so did... That's close. No, rep retrofarn. Oh man, I can I hear you say this all the time, but now that I try and say it, it's failing me. Oh, oh, you were so close. Oh, you were so close. You just stalled Retro out of there. <laughs> Retropharyngeal. Yeah, that's yeah. close. Retropharyngeal. Yeah. So the word is retropharyngeal. 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 Yeah. Retropharyngeal. So specifically... Oh, that's a hard one. Um, this I was thinking of in reference to the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which are lymph nodes which... Folks out there that are familiar with chronic wasting disease testing, or CWD, those are one of the lymph nodes that are usually tested um, for CWD surveillance. So very, right. very relevant this time of year in the fall where we are doing surveillance at, for example, hunter check stations and things like that. Yeah, I knew pharyngeal. Pharyngeal? Mm-hmm. Why is it as soon as you throw retro in front, I like just my brain melted? Pharyngeal. Retro pharyngeal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would have uh, known that it was uh, something in like the throat, but I would have forgotten. Yeah. Basically, retro meaning behind, so behind. behind the pharyngeal region. Retropharyngeal lymph nodes. Correct. Yeah. All right, good job. You're kind of, I'll give you a half a point on that one. I was struggling. You almost got it. I don't often see it written. Yeah, it looks, it's a it long, looks... <laughs> sort of an intimidating word to, to read, but yeah. you sound it out and it makes sense. Okay, so do I have one more to redeem myself on? Um, we do have, it? we do have one more. Okay. Okay, so I feel bad that we're kind of making fun of you, so. No, 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 I can handle it. <laughs> But speaking of wildlife-related words that are relevant currently at this time of year, fall, migration, that sort of thing. So there's this ecology word that I can never pronounce it, and I always forget what it is, but it's like... I already know what you're thinking of. It, okay, so it's it's like, I want to say it begins with an S. It's like struden fruit and rude like oh, i'm gonna hurt myself but it's basically the term for when wildlife are getting ready to migrate and they get really restless like what is that word migratory restlessness yes zugenru zugenru a german term that's such a good word yeah i love zugenru we almost uh named a boat in uh the gye zugenru zugenru okay so it made sense because i was traveling back and forth between east coast and the gye Zuganru, migratory restlessness. Excellent ecological term. Excellent word. Excellent word. We should have That's like a... That would have been one of the words I would have pulled for you um, in the next time we did this segment. Ugh. I was That's thinking... Right. Like... Well, I was trying to remember that word the other day, and I could not for the life of me remember what it was. I like want to have a pet goat or something and name it Zuganru. Oh, so good. Yeah. All right. So, challenging wildlife terms. There you go. Nice. What's next? Yeah. Um... Next up is who's back of the season. Who's, who's back? back? So who's back of the season? It is the fall and we're um, in the midst of bird migration. And so speaking of bird migration, who's back? Botulism. Oh, it is back. It's botulism season. Yeah. Botulism is back and back in a big way. Um, with water birds and shorebirds, particularly in the Great Lakes region. Yeah, so botulism, and pulling some information here from the Northeast Wildlife Disease Cooperative, botulism is caused by a toxin produced by the soil bacterium Clostridium botulinium. Challenging wildlife term. I nailed that. Clostridium botulinum. Botulinum. Yeah. Great, my Latin is terrible. It's <laughs> all good. Uh, but the uh, the toxin uh, causes paralysis and death in birds and is one of the deadliest known toxins. So it's a neurotoxin. Um, there are seven different types, A through F. Uh, type C and E are the types that are most important for wild birds. Um, and, you know, humans get botulism too from, you know, often different pathways. And those are types A and B and E, uh, but it's not a zoonotic disease. Um, interesting fact that I didn't know but makes sense is that vultures and other scavengers appear to be resistant to the toxin, hmm. which kind of makes sense if they're eating, you know, entirely rotted and fetid carcasses and stuff that they would develop that resistance over time. They'd evolve that. Um, so fascinating little, a little tidbit. Um, but that, you know, how to, how do birds, um, 
you know, get this uh, toxin, um, the transmission can occur when the toxin is in the environment uh, or in a prey um, item and is ingested. The bacteria are common in the soil of terrestrial and aquatic environments. In this case, we're going to be talking more about aquatic environments. And the toxin is uh, produced under certain environmental conditions that favor the growth of the bacteria, including uh, high temperatures, no oxygen, um, and abundant invertebrate populations, as well as decomposing vertebrate carcasses. So you get this sort of maelstrom of factors that lead mm -hmm. to high uh, levels of, of uh, botulism. Uh, and so, you know, with this season, um, migration on the Great Lakes, there's a sort of um, regularly occurring phenomenon of high incidences of botulism on the Great Lakes. Um, and they're, you know, scientists are working to understand the mechanisms here, but essentially um, you get this, yeah, that maelstrom of factors, you know, water levels might be low, temperatures are high, you have uh, algal growth in the water, um, you have, um, you know, a lot of invertebrate species, um, and you'll have botulism produced in these areas, um, and then that botulism will sort of get into sediment, and invertebrates are eating the sediment, and then vertebrate animals are eating the invertebrates, and we'll get this botulism sort of biomagnifying up the food web, and eventually you'll have um, animals dying and scavengers eating the animals, or uh, prey items are becoming easy to catch, and you have birds like loons or uh, mergansers or shorebirds on the shore just, you know, making a feast out of these easy meals, and then they're dying, sometimes in huge numbers. And that's what we see um, in certain years where the conditions are really great for botulism. You'll see these huge die-offs. So a particularly interesting wrinkle of this whole story is involving some invasive species in the Great Lakes, which um, there's still, you know, there's theories sort of running around and the research is still being done to understand the uh, role of these invasive species, but zebra mussels, which um, are, are pretty prevalent invasive species in the Great Lakes and in other water bodies in North America, they filter feed and they accumulate the toxin. And then there's another invasive species around goby, uh, which will prey upon the zebra mussels and they'll concentrate it um, and the, the round goby uh, then becomes a pretty easy meal for a bird like a loon and we mm. can see these huge die-offs of loons and there's a you know pretty major and growing concern for loon conservation i th i think at some point we might have to get somebody on the pod uh, to talk about uh, botulism in the great lakes i've got a couple folks in mind um, but again, that, that zebra mussel, round goby uh, sort of, uh, you know, interplay is still sort of not really well understood. So this is something that happens almost annually. every year, annually. Yeah. yeah, there's certainly birds, I think, that are dying uh, every year. It's just a matter of how many. Sometimes it's, you know, with loons, sometimes it's thousands yeah. are dying from botulism. And they're usually aggregated in these certain areas and I think that's you know especially as we talk about climate change being an issue for for wildlife in the natural world this is this is one of those examples where it's like you know playing a direct role where water temperatures are increasing 
um, algal blooms are increasing. You're seeing animals dying. You're seeing these uh, algal algal blooms sort of taking over um, in these in these concentrated areas and creating that anoxic uh, condition. So no mm-hmm. oxygen, which is what botulism thrives in, and then you sort of have that that sort of cascading effect from there and you can see these massive die-offs and that's sort of the theory there and then you know not the theory that's sort of like how it works um and then yeah you know are we seeing this getting exacerbated by zebra mussels and round gobies possibly at least on the on the loon front that seems to be the issue but it's fascinating you know i've always thought about it from from loons standpoint um but what was interesting is, you know, learning that a lot of these carcasses that um, wash up on beaches and the animals are dying on shorelines, then, you know, flies and other insects are lay, laying their eggs in the carcasses and the maggots are actually heavily concentrated in oh. botulism. And you have all these shorebirds coming in being like, oh, hey, great meal, concentrated meal, and they're just picking off these maggots, and then they're dead, too. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, and I was like, oh, geez. So, like, huh. yeah, they, they can get nailed pretty hard by all of it. Wow, so it's not just the diving, fish-eating birds. It's the it's shorebirds, too. Everything. Yeah, it's kind of everybody. Except the vultures. Except the vultures. <laughs> the vultures, they'll, uh, they'll survive anything, which is so cool. Huh. Well, that's all, you know, depressing, but interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think... Usually, it, I know I checked this last year. I haven't checked this year, but a lot of times if you check the National Wildlife Health Center, their Whispers website, um, they'll have reports um, this time of year as botulism is becoming more prevalent and, you know, numbers of birds that are confirmed, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. might be worth checking out um, that website to see what's going on right now. But Yeah, so botulism is back. It'll keep coming back. I keep coming back. <laughs> but right now, botulism is back. So yeah, folks, um, good, good. This is a good issue to to sort of keep your eye on, and uh, yeah, learn about what you can do to help um, keep our waterways healthy, um, which will help with this botulism issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So who else? Who else is back? What else is back? So other fall favorites that come around. <laughs> fall favorites, love it. Other fall favorites um, are good old um, epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus in deer is back. So this is, like we talked about before, hemorrhagic disease, so epistaxis, that sort of thing. Right. Um, not that epistaxis is a main um, sign that we see in, in deer with um, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, but nevertheless, so this is a virus that's um, actually transmitted by biting little biting flies so it's not really it's it's a vector disease between primarily white-tailed deer um so because it's vector born it does have this seasonality where it's primarily occurring in late summer and early fall Mm -hmm. um just because that's when the vector numbers are increased and there's more activity um we've been seeing outbreaks of this for a while decades it seems, in the southern U.S., but more recently, in the last couple of years, now we're starting to see outbreaks up here in our neck of the woods in New York. Mm. So it is something that's, you know, increasing in the U.S. And what what were the vectors again, the primary vectors? They're little um, biting insects, like little um, biting midges, I, I 
think they're primarily the genus Culicoides. Oh, look think, at you. Don't, okay, I'm don't definitely you on that. <laughs> not an expert in this, so I'm sure we'll get plenty of messages if that's incorrect. Right. But if yeah, I'm, Chuck, hit us up. Yeah, Chuck, sorry if I'm misspeaking here, but um, basically they're tiny little... Um, gnat-like flies that are spreading this yeah um this is not zoonotic it's not something that people can get um yeah it's a it's a vector disease right and so the timing is right and it's back oh it's back baby it's back. and it's also uh hunting season too we're getting into hunting hunting season here too so um sampling for this is mm-hmm. probably increasing right as hunters are are contributing to the sampling um with all the deer check stations and and such so i'd imagine they're getting this is a heavy time for infection but also a heavy time for um tracking and Mm -hmm. the infection Mm -hmm. yeah that's cool yeah and speaking of who's back let's talk about who never left oh who never (laughs) left who never left who's back they're so back that they never left yeah so let's talk about another hemorrhagic disease that showed up here in the U.S. in 2020 and never left. Um, so many folks out there, you can probably guess maybe what I'm talking about. So rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. Um, this is one that we've been following for quite a while. It's been since it first was detected in the U.S. last year, back in 2020. It's been kind of marching its way across the U.S. It started out in the Western states, um, and we've been sort of adding states to the list of affected areas pretty much every month, it seems like. Mm. Um, And this is interesting because this is another thing that highlights the overlap of wildlife health and domestic health, because it is a rabbit disease, which means that any of our wild rabbit species, so cottontail, um, hares, any of those jackrabbits can all be affected but also our domestic pet rabbits can be affected. So this is one of those diseases that is gonna really require a lot of cooperation between wildlife agencies and also um, domestic animal agencies. Um, mm. Pet owners Pet owners, Department of Agriculture, in. USDA, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so, so stay tuned for that. It does not appear to be going away anytime soon and so We've been kind of sitting over here on the East Coast watching this thing spread towards us. Right. And so we're in the midst of getting ready to, actually in my in my clinic where I work, I'm working on getting a hold of the vaccine so we can start vaccinating domestic rabbits um, so that if this shows up in our wild population, we can have a little bit of protection right. because trying to vaccinate our wild cottontails out here is going to be a, a whole, you know, is not really going to be possible yes. on that on that scale. So, yep, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. It's here. It's not going away. It's spreading. It's back. It's going to stay back yeah. <laughs> until it's not back anymore. But we do think it's important to uh, alert folks to this one. And it's a fascinating and wide-ranging wildlife health issue right now. Yeah, and we're definitely going to have an episode just about that. We'll talk to some experts who are in the thick of it dealing with this on the wild the wildlife side um so yeah stay tuned for that yeah so that's who's back and shout out the excellent podcast pardon my take for the uh inspiration of who's back as they uh 
they they do a great job with that segment of theirs of who's back related to sports and we're doing who's back for wildlife health uh, issues yeah so let's go on to our next segment which is parasites are cool too and for this inaugural segment i it came to mind to maybe briefly talk about the the fascinating wildlife health um, tool method approach for conducting studies of using ticks to sample blood from other species where it would otherwise be difficult to get that blood sample and maybe you can just sort of give a little flavor as to what that is and how it's done. Well, I don't know how it's done because I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) You know of it and you know more than I do. But I know it's a thing that you can do. Um, So for example, this could be really um, useful in, for example, a really small species like different species of birds that can be tricky to get blood on, especially out in the field. Mm. So um, being able to harvest an ectoparasite like a tick off of those animals and being able to just take the blood meal from the tick, which basically the tick in this case is just as, acting as a hypodermic needle right, <laughs> and syringe. And syringe. <laughs> so they're doing the hard work for you by collecting that blood. And so that blood meal that's inside that tick, in theory, can be analyzed for anything that you could you know, want to analyze in blood. Um, one of the biggest examples that comes to mind would be things like heavy metals, which are pretty, um, you know, they don't break down. They're stable. As easy, they're, thank you. That's the word I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> they're well, much more use, stable. <laughs> you, you use the great ecological term of blood meal. So I'll help meal. you out with the there stable. You go. <laughs> yeah. So there's certain things where this could be a, applicable. Um, so heavy metals, toxin analysis, that sort of thing comes to mind. Um, Isn't it uh, PCR? Yep. Anything that involves just looking for genetic material for yeah. surveillance of different diseases, in theory, you could do. Like a blood parasite, maybe, or yeah, something something like that. Yeah. Um, the other area where I've heard of this potentially being used um, on thinking just of bigger species that are heavily parasite parasitized by ticks, um, for example, moose that get yeah. hit really hard by these winter ticks, and so when those ticks become really engorged um, and they're finished feeding and they fall off the moose you'll have, you know, just hundreds, thousands and thousands of these ticks dropping off the moose. And so um, that in itself is, could be a, a valuable sample, as opposed to trying to get a, a blood sample from a moose where you're thinking of, in that case, probably having to chemically immobilize that moose. It's a whole ordeal. It's very expensive, labor intensive. But if you can... And have a tough time a year for the moose yeah. too, so dangerous for them. and Yeah. So you could think of you could still get some really valuable information from a blood meal sample from a tick that was engorged with moose blood. So sort of a non-invasive sampling technique. So really curious to see where people go with that and if if people start using this more as the technology advances. You gotta love parasites. You gotta love parasites. They're so fascinating. Except when you don't like parasites. Yeah, maybe like when you have one in you or on you. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out. Who's back? Ticks. Ticks are back. <laughs> it's tick season. It is tick season. They're still questing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's move on to our last segment, which is uh, this week in wildlife health. What do we What do we got up on 
for this uh, this week, Michelle? Yeah, so this week in Wildlife Health, we got the idea for this news story because it was actually recently posted on the Wildlife Disease Association Facebook page. Shout out WDA. Shout out to WDA. Um, and we thought we'd share this because, one, it's both super fascinating and also super creepy so we thought it would be interesting <laughs> it's like spooky season because it's yeah we just start it's like right around halloween right now um so basically what's happening is recently over in the uk some herpetologists have started discovering wild toads and frogs that are just infested with these huge numbers of leeches and what's really creepy about it is the leeches are primarily affecting their eyes um, and their mouth and like around their head and in their axilla, which is basically their armpits. But the picture I'm looking at right now, of course, is a podcast. So you can't see it, but we'll post it. We'll post it in the show notes and on our Instagram yeah, and Facebook and social. It's um pretty much just a, a picture of a toad and picture instead of eyeballs he just has like leeches yeah like piles of leeches where his eyeballs should be um so this poor thing and it's like mouth is just full and mouth just full of leeches i'm looking at it right now i'm not like i wouldn't say i'm grossed out by it but i i it's a bit shocking yeah and so this was not just a one-off thing they've they've found now several toads and frogs that have been affected like this over a pretty, what sounds like a relatively wide geographic range. And it, you know, I don't have all the exact details on this. This is just a, a news story that I, I was made aware of. Um, but our folks over at the amphibian and reptile groups of the UK, ARG UK, they've been tracking this and they're starting to partner with a lot of different organizations over there to try to get a handle on, is this an emerging you know, issue, what's going on here, what species of leech are we talking about, mm. um, why is this happening, why are we seeing this all of a sudden. There's certain environmental conditions that are driving this. Yeah. Or like is what's... it associated with some other health issue? Yeah. And just why are we why are we seeing this right now? They almost look like zombie frogs with right? with leeches instead of eyes. Folks, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen a picture of this, definitely check out our social or click some links on the show notes. It's wild. Yeah. And I feel bad for these frogs. It looks absurdly painful. I'm sure this results in mortality. Yeah. So we don't really have that much more detail other yeah. than that, but um, sounds like very a, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, sounds news. like an upcoming uh, podcast episode. We got to get someone from that from that research uh, cooperative. Yeah, definitely. To come on the pod. Yeah, so that that's our segments. Um, yeah, and that's that's concludes this uh, this episode. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for for listening. Hope uh, hope that was fun and entertaining for you. Definitely reach out to us on on social or send us an email or something if you if you like the segments. If you didn't like the segments, if you have ideas for. Um, other segments that we could do or if you come up with a challenging wildlife health term that you think i'd screw up <laughs> uh send that to michelle <laughs> and uh yeah maybe we can get me to 
have my brain melt and trip over my tongue a few more times in uh, upcoming episodes. I look forward to that. Yeah, it's not that hard as we've learned today. So thank you, everyone. Here's to another 4,000 downloads. And we'll be back shortly in a couple of weeks with episode... 11. Well, this is episode Oh, this 11. is 11 with episode, episode 12. Episode 12. Margaret Wilde. Margaret Wilde talking about elk hoof disease. That one's going to be awesome. I already gushed about her at the beginning, so I will hold myself back. But absolutely love her. You're going to love her too. So we'll see you then. See you, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.